to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Rhea Wong with you with Nonprofit Lowdown. I am so excited to have my friend Kishana Palmer on. We're going to talk about all the things related to fundraising and boards. Kish and I have known each other for a minute now. We both met doing a course at Harvard. At Harvard. At Harvard. But she is my go-to for all of the things about (laughs) fundraising. So let me read her little intro here. She is a Unimom. I love that. Trainer, educator, author, and professional speaker. Yes, she is. She's the founder of Kishana & Co., author of Hey, I'm New Here!, blogger for Secret Lives of Leaders and creator of the Rooted Collaborative, which is a learning community for WOC fundraising professionals. Yes, women of color. When she is not starring in the life of my queenager, <laughs> isn't that true? She is dropping knowledge about leadership in life. Kishana is the epitome of her classic 90s queens, homegirl, and a quintessential corner office executive. She is your daily dose of Claire Huxtable with a side of Blanche Devereaux. Come on, Love Blanche that. and Claire. <laughs> Blanche. Blanche and Claire. Blanche, Claire. You know, Blanche will give you this that that drama and Claire gives you that good side eye. I love it. Yes. I actually yes. just recently saw Claire. So I, I'm catching up on This Is Us and I was like, Claire Huxtable is back. <laughs> Isn't I, that funny how like we don't even call Felicia Rashad, Felicia Rashad. She's like forever Claire to us. It's of course. So funny. Of course. Like, true. I, I wanted her to be my mom. I was like, why well, didn't my mom? I mean, Huxtable. listen, don't tell Dawn that I, you know, <laughs> like, she's very annoyed, but it, it is a whole fact. <laughs> All right. Tell me about yourself and your path to this crazy world that we call the nonprofit executive experience. Yowza. Yeah. So I thought I was going to be like this international industrial business person. Are you not? I mean, I went to business school so that I could like work in fashion, which is hilarious. Asking me, did I ever get a job doing any of those things? The answer is actually no. So (laughs) I did a brief stint in investment banking very early in my career before I went to grad school. I know, I know. I did not know that. All the dirty secrets are coming out. Okay, okay. I I see you. Slipped and fell, I think, into (laughs) fundraising. I think most people say that. They sort of look up and was like, oh, I guess I'm in this job now. And I started out as a great writer. And then I sort of jumped a couple steps. So I went to project manager and a director of development. And I looked up and I was in this chief development officer spot. And for my most of my career, all but my first couple of years, I have been a C-suite executive. And so i um, working directly for the CEO in a development, communications, or marketing capacity, or all of it at the same mm-hmm. time, a little bit differently where I sort of started out and kind of jumped up pretty quickly, but it was not without its challenges. And so most of my work has been with youth serving organizations. So I've sort of been on the fringe of that reform. Organizations who are trying to get into the, into the principal's building after school or before school and with organizations that are thinking about young people when they're not in school on the weekends, et cetera. So most of my work is touching young people. I have a heart for that and for girls. And so raising money sort of just became like the thing that needed to happen so that resources were available to keep doing this work. And so that's something that has been really important to me. But I have been doing this 
oh gosh, well, I, I'm a recovering fundraiser, Rhea, okay? So let's be clear. You know, every time I try to get out, the people pull me back, okay? It's hard. It's very sticky. People always need fundraisers. They do, but they don't want us. They're like, fundraisers are interesting. Like people like always want fundraisers. So they're like, oh my gosh, we need someone to help us. But then they treat us by and large, like slick used car salesmen. I know I need a car, but I don't want to talk to you. So it's an interesting dynamic where there's not this level of, I don't want to say reverence, but like there's not this sort of lifting up of the people who really help to generate the resources organizations need to be successful and to scale. And yet organizations, by and large, flip-flop around if you don't have a good fundraiser. Okay. We are going to touch, because like this is a whole vein I want to mine around women of color fundraisers, because there are like five of us. There are like thousands, but we're going to talk about it. <laughs> I know, I know, but you know what I mean. Um, I know what you mean. So, but the thing that really struck me about you, like the very first moment that you met, we were doing like the intros, and you said something about the fact that like, all of us were talking about all of our baggage with money. I have baggage about money, but you were like, oh, to me, money is just a number. It's just a piece of paper and like doesn't like have this emotional hold on me. I forgot exactly what you said, but I was yeah. like, who is this? I was like, yeah. teach me all of the ways. Yes, tell money me, is a tool. Yes, That's tell me about that. I am thankful for and also blame it on my parents where, you know, I grew up in an immigrant family. I am a first generation American. My parents are Caribbean born and money was just like the thing that we at once did not talk about, but also like my mom would be really, really upset when we made money a thing, you know, like, so, and that was tied to food and that was tied to clothing. She'd always be like, there's, there's always more. The only thing that you can't get back is time. And so I was never enamored with people who had more money or less money I just thought, oh, people just have more access or less access. And this is sort of like just how the lot in life is. And so when I started raising money, I just started feeling like, well, we all put on our pants one foot at a time. That's what my dad has always said. And so I will just treat people the same way. They just happen to have more of the tool that I need to work with than I had at this moment. And that to me just made it super simple Mm -hmm. and made it easy for me not to be intimidated by working with folks who just happen to have, whether they earned it, they stole it, they inherited it, which also could mean they stole it, they worked for it, whatever it is, to me, the the how didn't matter. What mattered is that I wanted to make sure that I could align with individuals who wanted to do something really powerful in the world. And one of the levers I needed to pull was cash, and Mm -hmm. they have it. That's so amazing. So I'm going to say that Don has a one-up on Claire Huxtable on this one, because if we were all raised that way, I think our entire conversation about money and fundraising would be different. Okay, let me switch tacks. So as we have alluded to, one of the big things that I am really thinking about is how we diversify the field of fundraising. And for yourself as a lifelong fundraiser and a lifelong woman of color, I'm wondering what are the challenges that you think are unique to women of color fundraisers as compared to their white peers? Totally. So this topic is like near and dear to my heart and we'll talk about why, but by and large, I think that one of the biggest challenges women of color face in fundraising is one, do we even identify as women of color? Because part of the challenge that many of us have in navigating these spaces is having to deny part or all of our identity to be able to assimilate enough to raise 
the kind of money we need to raise for our organizations. So that identity piece is huge because you have to make decisions pretty early on and then pretty often about buying into the stereotypes that exist around each of our subgroups, mm-hmm. around us as a tot- in a totality of women of color broadly, and then having to do that over and over again over time, it is wearing on your soul. So that, I think that's, that identity piece is huge. I think the second thing that sort of stands out for me is in navigating social circles. And so if you are a woman of color who is American born, for example, and you've grown up in a circle of privilege, you typically have access to other privileged folks who look like you, right? So there's a whole world of people who are fill in the blank American who run in those particular circles of wealth and privilege, who do not experience some of the challenges I, coming from a working class immigrant family may have, and even knowing that these circles exist within my own community, one. And then when you start stepping outside of your own circles and your own communities, knowing that there's a whole other world of folk who are getting together, in the summertime and they've been summering since they were in high school and they've been wintering since they were exactly. And I didn't know to summer was a verb until I moved to New York. I did not know to summer was a verb and I'm a native New Yorker. You (laughs) know, to summer, I was summering at Rockaway Beach or Jamaica West Indies (laughs) at my grandmother's house, you know? (laughs) And so that was my to summer. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom's family has a lot of privilege Mm -hmm. and resources in Jamaica. And so I just wasn't thinking about it in that way. So I think in our profession, you have to actually really come into and understand and be and be self-aware enough around your own identity to know sort of like where your own circles start. And then you have to be cognizant enough, early enough to know what other circles you need to find your way into. And then you have to keep doing it over and over again. Like this is this is not for the faint of heart, and it is sort of bone-breaking work. And we're not even doing construction. And then I think the third thing, and the last thing I'll say quickly, Rhea, is that what's critical in terms of raising money differently is knowing who your allies are, who your frenemies are, who your enemies are. And oftentimes they are within your organization, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And many times the, the allies are not in your organizations. And so when you're battling that within your organization and when you have to go out and work with prospects and donors, that just adds a layer of nuance of work. Mm-hmm. that none of us are truly prepared for when we step into this field of really wanting to make a difference. You have said a mouthful. I don't even know where to begin. That is, <laughs> you just dropped so many things. Okay. So one thing that I, I want to revisit is this sure. idea of like exhaustion and having to give up parts of yourself or to have to curate parts of yourself in order to run in certain circles. And, you know, as for myself as an Asian American woman, I recognize the amount of privilege I have relative to my black sisters or my Latina sisters who, you know, don't, aren't perceived by the dominant white culture as being like white adjacent. I mean, there Mm -hmm. are, there are other issues with that too, which I can go into at some other point, but I think to your point, like, yeah, it's freaking exhausting. (laughs) So how do you personally navigate it? And how do you not lose yourself? I mean, I was lost before I started to be clear. And so I just want to let everybody know, like Kashana did not just have this like 
grand epiphany and then or or nor did I come out of my mama's womb like like knowing these things Dawn was not teaching this at the house okay she was like you're going to get a good education you're going to get married you're going to get a house and pay your bills and love Jesus and that's it okay like I have that a was... very hard time believing that you didn't bust out of the womb exactly like this you're oh, like, no. I am here oh, world you're yes. welcome but my mom might tell different stories that I definitely actually have always been like hello I am here. <laughs> you know but for me because I went to the I went to a very conservative and wealthy undergrad institution and grad school and so I saw wealth globally very mm-hmm. early on I went to school with the royal family of small Middle Eastern countries like Bahrain etc and so they were buying the houses around our campus, which were all mini mansions, you know? So I thought we had money when I went to college. I was like, oh, because I was going to college with a car. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I got my used car. Come on, Toyota, to sell. Like, you know, <laughs> no, yeah. okay. So well, by the time I went into the workforce, because I went into investment banking first and the investment program that I went into at the time, I went through SEO, which is a wonderful program here in New York City. But at shout out time, to SEO. Early, shout out. In those early days, there was a stereotype there was a, a die cutout. That's a better way to say it, not a stereotype, that they wanted us to fit in mm-hmm. in order to be successful in investment banking. The pinstripe suits the pinstripe and suit, the pink blouse the, and the hello, hair. the yeah. coiffed hair. My yep. hair was laid. You bet, y'all better hear me. Okay? <laughs> I didn't even know that I had curly hair. Right. My hair had been so relaxed. Pressed and pressed yep. and doobie wrapped. If you're a New Yorker who's listening to this right now, you know what a Dominican doobie is. If you don't, if you're listening to this internationally, look it up. A Dominican doobie. Yeah. Okay. So it's a you know, DAI I, moment, y'all. It is. Educate it is, yourselves. Is. Educate okay. yourself. You know, so I thought that I was already on that road because you're taught very early on mm-hmm. what you need to look like and sound like. And so even this idea that I would use more re- relaxed vernacular and mm-hmm. conversational tone, I didn't do that early in my first seven years of my career. And I also felt like I was dying every day. Mm. But I could not name that death and mm-hmm. I could not name that that's what's happening to me. And mm-hmm. yet it always felt like I was just drowning in a bathtub of water. Yeah. And I imagine that there are so many women who are listening to this right now who are like, shout out to the, to the drowning. Like, but can I just right. give y'all a scuba diving mask right now? You right. know? Right, right, and right. And so my scuba diving mask like, it did not come. What ended up happening is I ended up having to let the drain out at the bottom mm-hmm. because- mm-hmm. I just burnt out. I burnt out in every job. Every time that there's a statistic that is quoted about the fact that fundraisers last about 18 months in their Mm -hmm. role, Mm -hmm. I used to cringe and hide and be embarrassed by that. I am that statistic. I did not last in any role, except for my first role, longer than two years. People would hire me and then I would get recruited. Remember I told y'all I ended up moving into the chief executive spot really early on. So I would get recruited to come into organizations, to be a nation builder, to stand up development and communications teams, to turn teams around, to build very young teams in the face of what ended up being lots of internal strife around culture and around norming and around dominant culture norming, no support and no resources and no scaffolding already in place and expected to raise cash, not commitments, Mm -hmm. because there was no real fundraising map or runway in place for folks to understand that raising gifts takes time. And it takes more time when you are a person of color and even more time when you're a woman of color, because you've got to get folks to imagine you as their daughter, 
imagine you as their favorite roommate from college. Imagine you as the girl they want to kiki with. And for the men back in those days, because we're in the Me Too stuff now in the last couple of years, in particularly in philanthropy, but baby, in 2003, oh, you better be pretty and a little slim. You need to smell like all the things that we were told, either said or unsaid. And so if you are a woman of color, and for me, a Black woman who is used to being objectified in a way that is not healthy and not seen as the Madonna version we want to bring home to mama, that just complicates the whole mix. Yeah. You see, and, and Rhea, I see, you know where I'm going with this. Oh, I know. Keep going. I'm in church right now. So yes, keep going. come on, church. <laughs> say it, let me say it. Let me bring like... you all to the next. And, and to go even further, Rhea, I remember the day I met you, I thought to myself, she is my person. You had a red roller bag and it was your suitcase. It was a day oh, yeah, right. the first time. And I was like, where'd you get that bag? And we already connected and clicked, y'all. We already gone for yeah. walks and gone. And, yeah, BFF. But that, Right, but the guy with the colored glasses and the and the suitcase, it wasn't a regular hard case, y'all. It was like a red fly, like, it was like the bomb. And I was like, she's different. I'm different. I found my people. And I thought to myself, why didn't I know her 10 years before when I first started? I looked up and realized, and that was the first time I'd ever been in sort of a cohort. So I didn't do any of the fellowships. Mm-hmm. I had not done it. And I didn't even know that was a thing. That's its own ring. Right, 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 right. Because I stepped into development and I didn't step into education or programming or evaluation. I didn't know about those things, right? And so- mm-hmm. I didn't know that I needed to be really intentional about creating relationships and building relationships from other women, both who did not look like me, but are women of color. So Mm -hmm. I didn't do any of that. And women who were white women. Mm -hmm. So I had this like double edged sword where I did not trust the women I worked with. I had too many experiences of getting the wool, the rug pulled from under me. Mm -hmm. And because I came to the table with my own stereotypes as a New Yorker, mm-hmm. of different groups of color, mm-hmm. of marginalized groups already, it didn't make it better or easier for me to make friends. So all I did was continue to reinforce this very isolated and isolating experience in a system that's not designed for me anyway. Again, so much, but let's let's backtrack on this because sure. I think the idea, and, and, I, and I talk to a lot of young folks who want to enter fundraising and young mm-hmm. folks of color. And I'm like, look, this is just what it is. Like, let's just be honest about the fact that like, it is going to be harder for you because of the fact that you are not going to be imagined as their daughter, that they want to help out. And early on in my career, I'd hired a development director. She was older and she was like, kidding, not kidding. She's like, okay, when you go on and ask, you either have to show a little cleavage or a little leg, but not both because that's Baby, slutty. But not both. But not both because that's slutty. But yep. you got to show one or the one other. One or the other. If you want that I got check. that advice too early in my career. And being a young, small Asian woman going into these offices with these older white men. I mean, I'm sure you've had stuff said to you too, but I'm just like, where's my microphone right now? Like, does your wife know Correct. that you Correct. What? What? Correct. And, look, look, you every man's fantasy. You better cut it out. Okay. But I, like, what am I going to say? Like, hashtag me too, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I know I got to bring this check back. I know, like, I got payroll next week. Correct. and And yet, what do I personally have to put up with in order to get that gift? And it's crazy because I think that when I, when I talk with other women of color, I talk to women all the time, just period, because a lot of work I do centers around women now. But when I talk to women of color, we still talk in hushed tones about it. Mm-hmm. Like literally... I've had women say to me, and I have experienced this myself, that they had to have an outer body experience. Like they're watching themselves from the corner of a room, have the conversation 
when the conversation turns and it's inappropriate, whether it's inappropriate because of its sexual innuendo Mm -hmm. or it's inappropriate because of its cultural, like just willful ignorance and neglect, Mm -hmm. or it is just all out downright disrespectful. And what's at the back of their mind is like, oh my gosh, I have to bring this check back. Like if I don't, and if you're in a leadership position, you're an executive director, you're a CEO, you are a a VP of a vertical and you are, you know, this, you're responsible, your butt is on the line for this stuff. It can instantly feel like your power is zapped from you. Mm -hmm. When I was a fundraiser and not leading all the fundraisers initially, those were even, it would magnify. So -hmm. for young people who are thinking about, young professionals thinking about getting into the field, I think your advice is sound. Like this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And here's how we need to prepare you Mm -hmm. so that you are armed differently, I think is the next level of conversation and where I spend most of my time now because what I think has been super helpful, I can't say shout out to Dawn enough. For those of y'all listening, Dawn is my mama. Okay. Yeah. Every- yes, Dawn. Yes. yes. Everybody who meets her is like, I love you. Well, I, I expect that like, I know once I meet Dawn, I'm like, oh, it makes so much sense. It makes so much Shana's sense. It makes so much sense. You know, one of the things that I think is really, is really clear for me in that is that these, these experiences I've had didn't bring me to emotional ruin. Thankfully, they did not bring me to professional ruin, although there are people out there who tried. Okay, come on, back channel life will kill your whole career. And I know that it's not like that with everyone for every person and everything. Mm-hmm. And also that I don't have to stand as a victim in it. I can choose to do something different about it and understand that I know I'm going to use social capital to do it. Mm-hmm. And I understand that I may not be successful in the way that I might prepare for others to be successful. And that's a win for me. Mm -hmm. And so just that mindset has allowed me to sort of like restart Mm -hmm. when I just was like, I quit. I'm done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But let me talk about this. Like we're going to get personal for a second. So, you know, I've known you for a couple of years. I've seen you bounce around to a couple of different nonprofits. I mean, you are a wildly successful fundraiser. And my question is, what would it take for an organization to be able to attract and keep a talented fundraiser of color such as yourself? I mean, thank you so much for that. Yeah, I have bounced around. And to be honest, Rhea, like I wrote about this the other day, I've raised, you know, a little over $60 million. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what I know I have the capacity to raise and mm-hmm. would have raised and laid track to raise. So shout out to the folks who came after me who closed on all the gifts I set up, mm-hmm. right? Because you know it takes years. It does. And they are basking in my glory of yes. hard work. And it's okay. As long as the organizations are thriving, hey, but let's be clear. So to attract a person of color and a woman of color like me, an organization really has to internally at the leader, at the founder, CEO, executive director level decide that it is a critical business, moral, and mission-driven obligation to have equity and inclusion and diversity, not of thought, it replaced my spirit, at the, the center of the work. Mm-hmm. And that's whether we're, our missions are youth serving, whether they are life saving, whether they are planet saving, whether they are pet saving, it don't matter to me. Mm-hmm. People are your organization's number one asset and driver. Mm-hmm. Managers mm-hmm. are your accelerators. So if you are not making a decision that idea is at the center of what you do, or you want it to be, and you're willing to put money and time behind it, don't bother calling me because what I will do for you is we will have a honeymoon experience at the beginning where you're impressed by how honest I am and, and how authentic and real I am. 
And then within a year, one of my team members who I've inherited will show up in your office crying about the fact that Kashana is a tough manager. And mm-hmm. I really like her, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't know how to say this, but have you had the conversation with Kashana? No, but I'm afraid. Afraid of what? Is she going to bite? No. Like we have to be able to create right. the conditions internally right. for someone like me to actually be successful, both in our practices and in our policies and in the way we approach thinking about donors. And it's so interesting. I actually, I have a, I have a, a graphic about an infographic about this. Which Ooh, is like, I want to see it. Oh, okay. It's on my LinkedIn. I'll send it to you. Yeah. But it's like you hire the woman of color because you're DEI focused, like you're, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a token. And then the woman of color steps in and they're like, to your point, there's that honeymoon period where it seems like everything is great. And then all of a sudden, we somehow make the woman of color responsible for all of the things. Correct. And then she burns out or is marginalized by the rest of the team. And then it's not a cultural fit and she leaves and is burned out and nothing has changed. Correct. And it happens over and over and over again. Let me switch tasks a little bit because you know I want to talk about boards. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about boards. Okay, so boards tend to be predominantly (laughs) older white folks of capacity. Mm-hmm. And personally, I, I always like was really, I struggled quite honestly between like, how do I push this conversation around DEI and the fact that like they are, they are trustees of a, an organization that serve predominantly children of color. And the staff are like 20 something millennials who are very woke, many of whom are of color. And you have this white board who like, are well-intentioned, but not necessarily interested in being on that journey. So I guess my question is like, have you been in this situation and what do you do about it? Yeah, I think that one of the ones, like <laughs> my church, <laughs> one of the things that I think has allowed me to navigate board work as a consultant now, but when I was on team is I had to like, I had to like make sort of like TV characters of my board members. <laughs> similar to how I would make TV characters of my parents and grandparents. It's funny. And so I had to like give myself some distance Mm -hmm. in order to be able to do that work and still to do that work because otherwise it would just frustrate me to no end. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge is that when I work with CEOs now who are looking to start their boards and do board work, and you see this now with your work with executive directors, CEOs, et cetera, the thought how we go about building the board in the first place, I don't think we realize how much control we have when we're in that initial drive to do it the way we want it to be done. And if you are not a founder of color or if you're not a white founder who really thinks about diversity, equity, and inclusion as that sort of that, that central thread to your organization's mission, which many, many, many folks do not, let's keep it 100, then it becomes really hard to name that for board members early and often because what we want let's be real is cash mm-hmm. i'm not really sure we really even want what they have to say like we've been we've been taught to say yes we ask for advice and you get money ask mm-hmm. for money and you get advice it still is pretty true but i have to tell y'all a lot of times we don't want your advice because your advice is not necessarily even stop for a second to go what's the context that's happening around why you would like my advice and what are some of the conditions that are happening before I offer? So you just want to you want to give your opinion. Mm-hmm. And so when you're building out a board, I think it's really, really important for organizations to be real mm-hmm. about why they're building the board 
and about the risk reward of the type of board they're building. And I don't think we stop for the extra two beats it takes to do that. So I think that I see that all the time happening. And so when I get called in, I get called in to course correct that work. Then I'm having conversations like, so about the fact that you think these poor brown children need help. First of all, let's talk about this poor brown children expression you just used. Right. right. You know, like I have to like, you're like, like oh, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what's, what? I mean, that's what, unfortunate. It was what you do. What does that mean? And it's almost hilarious to me because again, back to that sort of like willful neglect or like just willful ignorance in believing truly in your heart of hearts that you're helping and yet not understanding how you are adding to the very conditions that are making the problem the problem. And you've, you've got to have folks who are willing to have the conversation and having your professionals of color drive that conversation who are not external to the organization and rooted, trained in that work and get rest from that work is not the right way to go about it. That's right. That's right. So let's talk about that. So I think one of the things that I've seen, and I'll speak for myself, is how as the leader of an organization and being a person of color, knowing that this is the right work and like not knowing how to push it forward because the other piece is like the board is your boss, right? And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, DEI is actually, is supposed to be uncomfortable work. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how do you as a leader continue to push that work because you know it's the right thing to do and it is the moral imperative and at the same time do so in a way that's not going to get you fired and maybe you will get fired and like maybe that's okay too but like i don't know i I don't know what the question is other than like how do you do this really hard thing i mean the reality is that your butt's on the line anyway right always Mm -hmm. and i think that's the thing that we have to be able to name Like when you're the executive director and you answer to the board, if the board understands their role in governance, which many boards do not, but let's let's start for this example that they do, then that has got to be a part of the work you insist is in your evaluative plan and your Mm -hmm. professional development plan. And that you and that board chair have got to be able to push pull on that type of conversation. And if that is not something that the board deeply believes in, then over time, you've got to change your board. But because the executive director's job is to operationalize the mission, you have the power to operationalize that work within your organization with or without your board's support, because Mm -hmm. that is your actual charge to Mm -hmm. operationalize the mission. And so I think just understanding that I think is really important and knowing sometimes you're just going to be on the line Mm -hmm. and you've got to know, here are the three things that I'm willing to dig my heels in on. Mm -hmm. Here are the things I'm willing to say, all right, okay, let, like we can fudge on this one. And here are the things that I'm like, whatever they say. So as a leader who wants to improve and, and put DEI at the center of their work, how would you recommend that they start doing that? Because I mean, look, well, I think it's, yeah. all, it's all a journey, right? Like we're all it's on this journey. journey together. Some of us are further back than others. Correct. So like, how do you get started on the journey and what does the journey look like? And this depends on how you learn. Like, so for example, if you're a reading nerd like me, I like to mm-hmm. read everything. Mm-hmm. And so I start with just like ingesting articles that could be opinion pieces, that's op-eds, that can be like real critical work, that can be watching the conversation that's happening on LinkedIn and Twitter because there's all type of foolishness happening. But watching the foolishness is a microcosm of what's happening in real life. And I guarantee you in your organization, mm-hmm. that can just be like paying attention to what is being written, said, and delivered through content, I think is a really good start, depending on how you, you learn. Mm-hmm. If you're an experiential learner, you got to go be in it. 
Mm-hmm. And so that to me is get in the class, the cohort, the experience, the day long retreat, learn for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like what are the sort of like fr- the framework that you need to have that as a pillar in your organization and then be willing to do that assessment. Like, okay, here's the places I need to learn and name that mess for your team. Make mm-hmm. it clear, be public, be vulnerable and say, here's how I'm doing it. Here's how I would like y'all to hold me responsible. Here's who my accountability partner or partners is or are. And here's what I would like each of you all to do too. Mm-hmm. And we're going to pull up this often, whether it's a quarter every for the first year, every quarter, or it's monthly for the first year and then quarterly. I'm not going to put it off on a, on a task force, off nither and nither and yon. I'm not doing that. And we're going to make this an active part of our learning experience. And I'm naming that it's going to take time, mm-hmm. but this is time moving. Right. So I think that that to me is powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you start to take that first step, even if you're like, well, hell, I've gotten to a place where I don't know where I need to go now. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I mean, there's lots of help out there. There are folks like you, Ria, who you're like, look, I have been in this chief executive role my, just my, my entire career. So I know what you're going through. Call me. People mm-hmm. like me, who I'm like, the only thing I've ever done is work for a CEO. Right. And so not only do I understand my verticals, but I understand how to work with y'all folks. Cause you know, y'all right. are a special breed. You know? We are a special, are. I know. Special, special I know. I'm going to, I'm going to do a whole podcast about founders and like, why yeah. founders are just terrible. I mean, oh we're, we're amazing, but yeah, terrible. amazing and also terrible. Just like yeah, no, I- so there's a whole breed of folks with the network. So just like, there's a way, like just start, but mm-hmm. name it, be visible about it be vulnerable with it mm-hmm. and be committed to that ongoing practice. I think it's really, really important that you can start from your seat of power in learning what you need to do and acting on what you learn. I got to go to school for four years for this. Mm-hmm. You know, this is real time, real world learning yeah. on the job and being vulnerable and also being willing to be corrected mm-hmm. and being willing to course correct, mm-hmm. I think is really important. Yeah. I mean, I'll be real with you. I. I don't think I did that particularly well. And I think I didn't do it well with my board because like when I saw like the immensity of the work that needed to be done, I was like, I can't, I don't even know where to begin with. You know, it's like a hoarder's house. You're like, I don't even yeah. know where to start with this. Like Correct. conversation and where you all are on your journey. Like you forget about the journey. You don't even know where the map is. Right. And I don't know. I, I think I just like, started a couple of things and like it, it didn't take. And I was like, why can't you just like, I kept hoping like one day, like you'll wake up and be like, oh, I realize that like my white privilege is really a problem. And like sure. has shaded my perspective about the whole world. Guess what? That never happened. No. And I actually don't even start conversations there because now, because it just, I don't, just don't, I don't have time. But before, because I didn't understand it enough. Right. Like I didn't grow up reading the like, the, you know, the, the 12 novels and works that you needed to do to be officially woke. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't do any, I didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah. I didn't have any of that education. And so I started from where I was, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I didn't come into conversations trying to get folks to understand their privilege because I didn't use those words. Yep. What I try to do is figure out like, what are the words people are using? What can I get them to understand in this moment? What, how much do I need to push them so I can get what I need? Mm-hmm. And there'll be 50% of them that if they see the results, they're like, ah, oh, do more of that. And then there'll be some who, no matter how much I push or how good the results are, they'll never see that. Right. There'll be folks who don't need me to push that hard to get the results. Mm -hmm. And that feels about right to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so I totally understand, Rhea, that you were just like, look, I'm too tired for this mess. Like this, yeah. this 57, 1100, 2004 other things yep, that need right. to be done. I'm not coming back for y'all right now. Right. Like I right. just, right. And that's very hard for your team to understand. Mm-hmm. And so for folks who are listening to this and thinking like, oh my gosh, this is happening to me right now. Start where you are, like mm-hmm. be able to name for your teams. Y'all, this work is hard. It's messed up. Here are the two or three things I see that are happening all the time. Here are the competing priorities I have in order to be able to do X thing. If I focus on this thing, the probability that I'll be successful is this or that. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to take the chance on it because of why. Mm -hmm. But also understand that I'm going to have to take my eye off the ball on these things over here. Mm -hmm. And the outcome for that is going to be this. Let's talk. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think for me too, it was, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not a millennial, right? So I think to your point, like there was a lot of personal education I had to do for myself and I'm, I'm still doing, right? Like we're never done on this process, mm-hmm. but a big part of it was the fear of like mm-hmm. messing up, not saying the right things, offending someone inadvertently. And I'm not saying that's mm-hmm. the reason not to do it, but for myself, it was the fear of like, I'm going to screw this up in some kind of way. And so like, I would almost rather like, like, I don't know how to approach it knowing that inevitably I'm going to screw up. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And I think that happened to me a lot. Like I just, the first time I really ever spoke up about something that was pretty wrong at work, I'm pretty sure that's one of the reasons I got fired. Mm Because I went from being a superstar to not being able to do my job in less than six weeks of speaking up. And what was different for me in that particular role is that I didn't know enough then and I didn't feel confident enough then to be like, hey, it seems to me like this is what's happening. I right. knew it internally, but I was like, but what do, what do you do with that? Do you call somebody? Yeah. Like, is somebody who will fight with you? Like, what, what do you do? Would you, you call Kashana, like the superwoman flying in, right? Correct. Like, there they wasn't a Kashana to call on the phone. <laughs> you know, like, no. And so I felt really deflated by that experience. and and. Then it occurred to me that, oh, I've spent my entire career building runways for other people. So let me tell you what I know how to do, build the airport and planes. Mm-hmm. I know how to hire all of the flight attendants, gate attendants. I know how to hire all of the mechanics. I know how to mm-hmm. do all of that. I can fly the plane, you know, but we going on a short trip. I'm going to land it to make sure the plane works. And then I got to go. Mm-hmm. I roll mm-hmm. a bag and I'm out. And once I realized like, oh, that's actually who I am because mm-hmm. that's the experience I've been having over and over again. It started to, I started to really lean into having those harder conversations and those experiences and not mm-hmm. seeing my professional career as like one long disastrous failure mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I wasn't able to replicate the time the kind of results as my white counterparts. And I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't getting the opportunities. I've been in three jobs, three back to back where after I left that organization they hired two to three people to replace me. But when I asked for help, told me that they were told that one person should be able to do that job well. Well, listen, you need a job done, get a woman of color to do it. And then when Come she break, breaks her back doing it, back. <laughs> then you hire uh, three other people to do her job when she leaves. Correct. Yeah. So last question for you. I mean, you sure. in your consulting world see a lot. You see a lot. I see a lot. Are you ultimately optimistic or pessimistic about the world changing for the better for women of color in general, but for as fundraisers. Yeah, I'm optimistic and I'm optimistic because I decided last year that I was going to do something about it. Mm. And 
so over the last year, I've been having conversations with lots of lots of women from different parts of the world about like what's necessary, what kind of resources do they need? I mean, these are women of color specifically. What would need to be true for them to be able to have the kind of learning environment, the community, sponsors, mentors, et cetera, necessary for them to be successful and to navigate our world raising money. And out of that has sprung the Rooted Collaborative, which is basically our emerging online community for women of color who raise money. So whether you're an executive director, you're a frontline fundraiser, you're an operations or grant writer, if your hand touches money 50% of the time, even at foundations, your hand touches it, giving it away, here, we're talking to you. To be able to find one another, to your point earlier on when you were like, there's five of us. I was like, 5,000, you know, but yes. But it feels like there's five there all feels the time. Like that. I know. And especially oh in gosh. New York City, you're like, who, what women of color are out there raising serious Even money? Even today, somebody sent me a note like, hey, did you, did you know this person who's the president of the organization? And I was like, uh, no. And so now I started drilling down again. We're not, we're not visible enough. We're not mm-hmm, trying mm-hmm. to connect with one another enough. We're mm-hmm. in our offices going, where's everybody else? But we're, because we have so much going on, we're not reaching in the ways that we could. And so the Rudy Collaborative is going to allow women to be able to find each other in an online home. Right now we're on Facebook and we have our website. But the next year, which you know, I'm, you know, you already signed up for, okay? So hello, we're going to be, we're going to be convening. Of course. We're going to be convening for the Rooted Retreat, which is going to be next summer, July, 2020, where that'll give us two and a half days to be able to gather in person in community, so that we can... Please tell me there's a beach involved. I don't know if there's going to be a beach this time because, you know, okay. I just want the people to get there. You okay, know, you start okay, adding okay. beaches. I mean... People don't come to the session. <laughs> I you know. But I don't worry, saying, I'm not... We, we can confab on the beach. Anyway, yeah, I can, no, I can no, multitask. We, we can figure this out. We'll figure this out. But there definitely is not going to be having y'all in a conference room all day long. We're not doing that. But an opportunity... I know, no. But an opportunity to learn from and hear from one another yep. and real thinkers, folks we've never even heard of, we didn't know they existed yep. around everything from professional development, negotiating, recruiting firms, writing, like, you know, style, mm-hmm. your health, your mental health, mm-hmm. you that we actually are equipped Mm-hmm. To, to navigate. So I feel like as Rooted continues to grow, we're slated to be at a thousand folks on our list by the end of this Love year, it. which is amazing. And so we will probably triple up that number in the next year. So, and we're not going to have room for everybody at the retreat. So folks better get on the list. Okay. When it's time to apply that to me is a start mm-hmm. and I can't do it by myself. And so I am enlisting all of the women that I know who have their own networks and their own skin in the game to be able to come together. There's not been a person I've met who's not been like, let me, let me help. Yeah, And yeah, there are yeah. lots of like loose groups happening out in the mm-hmm. world and mm-hmm. the Rudy Collaborative is helping to bring all of them together. So I'm super excited about that. And the Chronicle of Philanthropy is actually p- publishing an article. By the time this podcast airs, it's already be published on this very thing, like what is happening to women of color in our profession. So I'm super excited about that. So I Love feel it. hopeful, mm-hmm. but, but I feel hopeful because I decided that I have enough enough energy that this work is critically important that there are enough women who need us, mm-hmm. that the work just has to get done. Yep, 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 yep. Love it, love it. Such a doer. You, you are your own superhero. I love that. So <laughs> I'm going to make sure that all of your information is in the show notes. So folks who want to get in touch with you, folks who need some DEI training for your yes. board, your staff, your fundraising department, all the things. Do you do all the things? I do all the things. All the things. Also, resident diva. She's amazing. Yes, awesome. Yes. Her wardrobe is on point. 
<laughs> Listen, you gotta have a good wardrobe, okay? This is very important to Listen, me. Listen, okay. Well, I, I don't want to give a teaser to. <laughs> I don't give too much away, but we're gonna have Kashana's brother, who just styled me out, to talk about <laughs> why you need to revamp your closet for success. Because I know yes. you're looking a little raggedy out there. A little raggedy. Oh, a little raggedy. Raggedy. A little raggedy. Yeah, we don't need to look raggedy, okay? No, we need to be yeah. ourselves, but Fierce. also comply with it all the fear. Absolutely. All right, my friend, feel better. So good to talk to you. And we're going to have you back again. Absolutely. Bye. Bye.